Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, the CEO and co-founder of CodeC, Shanae Levin, joins us from San Francisco, California. Shanae Levin, welcome to Maintainable. Thank you so much, Robbie, for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Yeah, absolutely. A couple of things. I think first the shift left movement um, in software delivery and uh, shifting left is basically you know, moving, understanding, visualizing your code, moving everything closer to development <laughs> uh, when you're writing the code instead of waiting until things are in production, particularly as code bases um, increase in size and complexity. It is so critical to catch things before you write the code, and that's critical to maintainability. And the other thing is a new category of tooling called code visibility tools. So being able to see how your code is working before you write code and understanding all of the things that we need to do or need to know in order to write good code. A lot of those things are just like the code itself, but a lot of those things are like context things, right? Like those that tribal knowledge um, that we don't know that's not connected to the code and getting visibility into all of those things really helps to make a maintainable and resilient code base. Now, when you talk about code visibility, are you talking about like diagrams of like, you know, I'm trying to visualize what that might look like. Is that, is that a visual representation of things or is it like I'm thinking of like ERD diagrams or database schemas? If People aren't familiar with that acronym meant, but yeah, it's all of those things. Um, so you can the code visibility category is basically being able to visually summarize how your code is working at every step of the development process before production, right? So you might need to visualize something um, just like the status quo, the code base, because we don't write hello world applications anymore. There's always code there, right? Um, And so then how do you review it when you get your first draft of the the code? How do you view it um, at the code review section? How do you view it before it gets into CI, right? Like making sure that you've got all that feedback connected and it goes through a couple cycles. How do you visually see it, see what's connected to it, see the impact that that change is having on your code base all before it actually makes it to production and Interesting. I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around that because it's kind of like, an, admittedly, it's kind of like a new yeah thing for me. I'm also I'm also curious. You mentioned the the shift left movement, and I don't think I actually don't think I've heard that before. Yeah, it's um, the shift left movement is basically was started in the security space, kind of moving security more and more cl- uh, closer to development. Like Sneak kind of pioneered this and um, a bunch of other security tools. But there's a lot of other things outside of security <laughs> that you can shift to when you're actually writing code. A lot of our dev tools today focus on helping you to understand your code after you write it. So like very much in the observability. So you've written a bunch of code and now I'm going to watch it to make sure that that black box of code doesn't explode. 
And if it does explode, now what do I do? How do I fix it? But the shift left movement is really about, okay, how do I understand everything before I write code so I can just write better code? So being able to like simplify the complexity of the stuff that were that has been already been written, um, I'm assuming. So is this something that you can do before you start building a project or is this like something that can come into play? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, there's a couple of, you know, startups and there's also, you know, uh, some big customer, uh, big companies that are really trying to approach this in many different ways. So with Codesy, we basically connect to your code base and we can literally map your whole code base. And for the first time, it just looks like a connected mess of things until you start breaking it down and really understanding it. So we've, we've seen kind of dependency graphs before we've seen kind of, you know, how like nodes and lines and edges and that sort of thing. But ours really allows you to take that dependency map and use it for usability purposes. Like how do you collapse group? How do you explore? How do you hide things so you only see certain connections like what is the user experience around exploring a code base Um, and that has really never really been done before and then uh, there's a couple of other startups that are doing it in different ways they visualize the code reviews they visualize like runtime data right they visualize all the different types of things that you need to know to record or to understand your code base so we're all taking very different approaches but the movement has started. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about, and I noticed I was looking at, just, I just pulled up the website for Code C real quick, and we'll get into talk a little bit more about that and who that's like the target audience for that, for the product and stuff are. But, you know, I'm thinking about one of the challenges that we have as software developers wrapping our head around the existing systems. And like, that's pretty much all I'm, I work in the consulting space. And so all I ever do is look at other people's code that's been written to to, 15 plus years ago. And I feel like there's the, uh, there's the code side of things. And there's this kind of like the business domain context as well. How do you find that these types of tools help on like understanding the business domain in, in relation to that? Yeah, I think it's absolutely critical. So consultants love the code visibility movement <laughs> um, because, uh, and I, you know, was just talking to someone uh, just yesterday that, you know, they're going into these legacy code bases, right? And like, they have no idea what to do, how to refactor it, you know, how not only once you're done your changes, but handing it back to the client, and then that person maintains it, right? And so digging in and understanding uh, code, you'd be surprised to know that we spend about 60% of our time reading and understanding code, and there are no tools to do it. We read it line by line <laughs> and we build a mental model in our heads. Every developer does this. And then when you're trying to work collaboratively with someone, because typically, you know, we don't work in a silo or we at least try not to. Um, the other person that we're working with also has to read the code line by line and build up a mental model. And that process hasn't changed in 50 years, right? So the kind of movement with code visibility is doing what other industries do, which is 
having a visual summary (laughs) of what is happening or why it's happening. And then you can then attach that understanding to in that mental model once you have that visualization. Interesting. So we have that other 40%. Is it uh, the other 40% that we're writing code or is it the other 40% is probably like 80% um, hitting undo and maybe 20% uh, (laughs) writing code? (laughs) Um, I would say that there's about 20% of time writing code and the other 20% is getting alignment, right? So making sure that you know, you do that knowledge transfer of all that business context that <laughs> you talked about before and making sure that your tech leader, your manager, or the architect is all on board with, uh, you know, your architecture changes or what approach you decided to take and making sure that you understand all of the whys that have happened before and tracking those people down. And hopefully they've got documentation, but, you know, turns out nine times out of ten they don't. And so (laughs) it's really around the alignment piece um, and all that business of context of why uh, that's the other 20%. And then you can spend that last 20% actually shipping the thing you were trying to ship. You mentioned like documentation and things like that. Are there... You know, like I, I'm assuming that some types of things can't be just captured visually, and it's like it's a maybe the rationale for why things are the way they are is sometimes lost between you know the generations of developers that come and go in a, on, a, on a software product. What are some effective ways you've seen teams manage documentation, or have you ever seen it, or or has it always been kind of shitty? <laughs> um, well, some teams use Codesy, so we take a unique approach with this. Um, where like we can not only map your code, but then you can like attach any kind of architectural knowledge that you want on top of that. And then as the, and we will keep that in sync with your code. So as your code changes, all of that information will persist and it doesn't get lost. But some people are, I I met a customer who was absolutely notorious about writing documentation. So you couldn't write code until that documentation was written. Uh, And if he hadn't approved it, (laughs) then uh, you you just like didn't write code. And I was just like, so that's like the ultimate extreme, but there's basically like everybody else is in the middle. (laughs) And it's just, it's really, really challenging because we put so much responsibility on developers and we don't ever teach them how to write good documentation or what is the right way to transfer information of knowledge like what is the right way to transfer knowledge between one another and what do we do if you're trying to explain something to someone else basically teaching someone so that you make sure that the model that you have in your head effectively gets transferred to the model in their heads. We don't ever teach anybody to do that. Um, And we don't have real standards for being able to do that. And the code is changing so fast that uh, it's really hard to even keep it up to date, even even if you could. So basically, you've got the two extremes, (laughs) or it just sucks. I'm curious, you know, you think um, in that scenario where, like, I'm, you know, this is maybe just me getting a little ruminating a little bit one of the challenges that I think that I experience is like how does two people ever know that they're on the same page about anything so I always like I've just had this like a little seed of like eh, does this still feel a little subjective like we're both saying the same thing but do we even have the same understanding of what that is even though we're using the same words 
it's just like these lines of disconnect that we have just communicating, right? So for me, I'll give you a not so not so extreme example between a developer and a non-developer, for example, right? So the problem with communicating between a developer and a non-developer is that the non-developer doesn't have all of the context that the developer has in their heads, but they still need to kind of understand something about the code. There's still a mutual dis- discussion and decision that needs to happen. Um, so what what do we do between developers? We used to get in a room together draw things out on a whiteboard. And that's how <laughs> we were able to transfer that knowledge between two developers. But in the non-developer case, the best thing is still that picture, right? It's still that mental model of having that same picture because once you get the information out of your head into a drawing or a representation of that model, that's something that can then be shared and reasoned about. Right, I can literally point to that thing and explain it in very small pieces and make sure that the other person has that small piece and then you can like build everything out from there. Um, and that has been personally like, you know, I can't advocate enough whether or not you use Cozy, but just like a diagram, <laughs> any diagram has been just the most effective uh, way to transfer information. We have this saying that's a picture is worth a thousand lines of code. Is it a safe assumption that with Code C, this these types of diagrams become a little bit more uh, dynamic and self-updating in a way that you know I think one of the challenges with documentation and any sort of diagrams you want to take a picture. I've had I know that in several projects that I've worked on, there are pictures of whiteboards that we took. Like we might need this again one day. I don't know how often I've ever looked at the photos again on that we put in the like those wikis and whatever over the years. But we took the photo because we thought that was important to go back and reference again one day. And then it's two years later and it's probably outdated now until we do it again, right? And so what are some effective ways you've seen teams manage and keep those types of things updated and and in alignment with documentation as the platforms evolve? We have built Code C to just be self-updating, period. Like it just, it was built that way from scratch from day one because that is the primary headache. We talked to thousands of developers who's like, yes, I can use a diagram or yes, I can use Lucidchart or Miro or any one of those things, but I still, there's still problems with that, right? I still have to know the whole code base, which no one ever does. And I still have to take time to go and update them. And so from day one, we made uh, CodeC's platform able to connect directly to the code. And as the code changes, the map updates itself. Like it just solves that problem. We'll be back with our interview with Shania in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, dot, 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 are you even listening? Are you there? What are you doing? Anyhow, if you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on Apple Podcasts or wherever else people are rating podcasts online these days. Do you know someone in the industry that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now let's get back to our interview with Shania Levin. I'm curious, what is your take on the metaphor technical debt? Do you use it day to day in your work environment? 
Technical debt? Oh yeah, absolutely, without question. My definition of technical debt is just stuff that we didn't do <laughs> for whatever reason <laughs> um, that we want to do that just didn't think was the absolute highest priority at the moment for whatever reason. Simply, it's just a to-do. Do you ever find yourself disagreeing with how other people might talk about technical debt and like amongst people you've worked with over the years or like, mm, I wouldn't maybe, or do you feel like you might've called technical debts something else and labeled it as technical debt? And in hindsight, you feel like that understanding or appreciation for what technical debt is has kind of evolved over the years? So I'm a developer and, you know, I appreciate tech debt just as much as the next person throughout my career. I have prioritized tech debt. It's not always 100% of the time, but for example, at Coatsy, we have tech debt sprints every six to eight weeks. So basically like every, every one, we have weekly sprints. Um, and one of those sprints is basically like, you just get to work on tech debt. We prioritize it, the team works on it together. You just spend that whole week like cleaning up as you go. Um, and that was something that really worked for me at on different teams. And so not letting it just having complaining about it all all the time. It's just like doing it in small chippable chunks is the way that it's maintainable, in my opinion. And so just making a tiny bit of time for it really helps. So my my that's been my stance for years now, and I don't see myself changing that. Have you talked to anyone that says like, oh, maybe maybe there's a little too much emphasis on like the engineering's team's benefit versus like the product benefit or you feel like you're in a nice luxurious space or do you feel like there's some merit to that so um i've been a product leader um in, in my in my background where i've led um product teams and had to be the interface with like between engineering and product and also other departments like sales and whatnot right two ways that i solved this problem is one i made all of my teams being able to articulate what the tech debt, how does that map to product or business value? Like maybe it's this part of the code base is, you know, hard to work with. And so that thing that you want to ship is going to take 10 times as long. But it's being able to say, this is the benefit for X stakeholder. Um, and here's how that technical debt helps you. Um, and the other thing is right back to the original thing that we've been talking about this whole time, which is a visualization. So um, previous, before Cozy was built, <laughs> we I made our teams, and I also did this myself, like draw a diagram of where that technical debt lies and what does it touch. And yes, it was annoying and super time consuming, but it made that conversation incredibly easy because the other non-technical person who's complaining about tech debt can now understand the mental model that I had around tech debt. So today in our product, we actually allow for this, that diagram to happen about 70% of the way. So the map will auto-generate and you can literally go in and label where all of your tech debt is. And then you can basically set an automatic trigger to say, hey, if this particular file changed, go unmark that um, as not tech debt anymore or go ping whatever person because it's all a part of maintainability. It has to be there. 
You know, earlier on, you mentioned, you know, how, you know, we spend so much of our time reading code and it's not changed in what, 50 plus years or so. Why do you think that needs to change? We've been producing a lot of great code over the years, haven't we? Like, wh- why, why, does, why do we need to revisit some of these types of topics? Well, because the world has changed. <laughs> so, and the way that we do this one thing uh, hasn't kept up with the massive explosion of the world. <laughs> so, like, we all, I mean, I'm not going to be cliche here, but, like, the software already ate the world. Right. And now we need to deal with it. Like we, our tools haven't really kept up with the massive amounts of code that is out there. And, you know, as you know, you continue to innovate, um, you need the tooling that you use needs to keep up with the, the speed of innovation. So if you think about it, right, we have code out there that is detecting cancer, that is using AI, that's basically almost human at this point. But the way that we understand code, we still have to read it line by line and build a mental model in our heads. Like that, that those two things are existing at the exact same time. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you think like these types of tools are helping? Is it helping improve the accessibility to more people? Like we're opening the a wider door to people that can come in and make sense of this this world where. You know, I, I'm not a very good diagrammer myself, admittedly. And so, like, there's a, I've always had aspirations like, oh, I would love to work on really great diagrams. But every time I sit, I'm like, what am I supposed to use here again? I didn't go through and get a proper, like, CS degree or anything. So no one ever taught me that stuff. And so I'm not great at that. But I'm like, okay, I can read through, figure things out, and kind of break my way to some sort of successful outcome for software most of the time. Uh, or at least a reasonable amount of, uh, of the time. But how do you feel like these tools are helping changing like who is getting to participate in this type of career? Um, I'm so glad you asked that question because I could talk about this forever. So Coatsy was never actually supposed to be a product. <laughs> don't don't tell anybody I said that. Um, it was supposed to be a training course because I was like, oh, this uh, visualization, like how I understand like how to write code is like I, I have all these mental pictures in my head. And then I started like any product person does, I just was super curious. And I started reading these academic research papers. Yes, I am a huge nerd and read academic research papers for fun, which is fine. (laughs) So I ended up coming across one or a couple that said, in order to read and understand code, it goes back to this skill called spatial reasoning, which is the ability of visual, like, visualizing and transforming things in your mind's eye, which is exactly true, right? We visualize and understand code in our heads. We read this this language and we build a picture in our heads. And that is an actual skill. It's a trainable skill. So people who, from the time that they are kids, or maybe their parents were engineers, et cetera, or have spatial reasoning abilities, it's a place in your brain that you can train. So if you use puzzles as a kid or you played with Lincoln Logs as a kid or you had some kind of physical thing that you were able to transform and morph, those people with that skill are make better engineers. And so what do you do? I don't know about you, Robbie, but I got dolls as a kid. And so <laughs> I didn't have really strong spatial reasoning skills. And for me, it was a struggle. Like I basically cried every day. And that was the measure of how I understood that if I was getting better at 
coding was how little I cried that day about like pushing through. And so the people who don't have that spatial reasoning skill, like two things happen. One, they struggle just like I did. And you just wear it as a badge of honor because everybody else struggled through it. And that's just what you do. Or they leave because it's, it's too much. And so I was like basically devastated when I'm reading this research paper and I'm like, holy shiznit. Like what if we could just remove that need for us to build that skill altogether if we just take the mental models out of our head and literally put it on the screen. And so we're hoping that having these pictures of what code is supposed to look like will help countless people get in and stay in engineering. And that's very, very near and dear to my heart. That's awesome. I'm, I haven't heard of that spatial reasoning before. I'm going to have to pull some details up on that. I'm curious about... I also have a talk about it. <laughs> oh, excellent. That's even, that's even better. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll include a link to that. Awesome. <laughs> you know, you mentioned like your team is tracking down, you know, you know, every six to eight weeks you're dealing with technical debt. And what is kind of the guidance that you, the team has right now to, like, when do they capture down ideas for that? As you see things or do they keep it in a back? Like what's the process look like for even like, you know, you, before you get to the point of even prioritizing it, like how does that stuff get captured or, or does it just seem like it's kind of knowledge amongst the team that like, oh, everybody knows that this is kind of an annoying thing that's kind of dragging things down a little bit. Uh, yeah, we're, we're linear converts. If you've ever heard of linear, it's basically like a newer, sexier Jira. I mean, we do what everyone else does, I think, which is we just make a ticket and label it as tech debt. Um, And then we pull up that label right when we're planning and just kind of prioritize which tech debt to do first in the tech debt sprint. Um, And then we kind of clean it up. And it kind of, when you have a dedicated time to just say every six to eight weeks or however long it is, like we're going to do a tech debt sprint, like you just, you clean up as you go. And that backlog doesn't, hopefully doesn't get too unmaintainable, right? And that's the whole name of the game, right? A maintainable, resilient code base. Like, I'm curious, like how large of a team are you working with right now? Right now, the team is seven engineers, but this was the same thing that I've done at much larger companies too. As long as everyone is in agreement that and your product managers are in agreement and it really does help when you have that visual conversation with people to be like this thing is actually going to hinder you from getting that thing longer term and here's why here are all the thousand connections that we need to go and modify to build that feature that you need in two weeks right so let us do this and we will have 500 connections um having that conversation just helps so 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 much you know, I'm curious, does your team track any sort of data metrics that you found useful to kind of track the, let's say, the health of your software delivery cycle? I don't think we're doing that right now. And the reason why is because, you know, we're an early stage startup. And to be completely honest, we are shipping so fast. Because one, we use our own product, but two, I, I, I'm, I get to be the boss at this developer. <laughs> I'm a developer as a boss, right? And so I get to, I listen to what my engineers tell me to do. They don't let me code anymore. Um, <laughs> the code's too far gone. So I, I get to say like, oh, that thing would be helpful. Awesome, do that thing, right? Oh, this, we need a tech debt sprint? Totally fine. Oh, this performance thing? Sure, no problem. I get it. 
do it. And I think having that understanding, and even if I didn't, I've got an amazing co-founder who walks me through, you know, why do we prioritize the things that we need to do? And then we have that trust within each other to try to make sure that the engineering team is as productive as possible. But also like our product really does help with all of those things. That's great. Do you, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier as well around, you know, like how there's like non-developers and developers needing to have, like they're missing context from each other in some ways. What are some effective strategies you've seen? You know, let's just assume most of the people listening to this are developers and maybe they're working in an environment where they don't have the luxury that the people that are in the product team are maybe don't have a background in development themselves or, or maybe the perception is from the developer's perspective. It's like, it's just like they're throwing work at us and we're trying to advocate for our best, you know, to make our lives better. But all the things you've probably heard teams deal with, um, what are some effective strategies that you could like kind of offer up any advice for people listening that maybe they're feeling like they've talked and maybe raised concerns like, oh, this, there's some things that are slowing us down. There's some technical debt. There's things that are just really irritating to work with. And I, but I've asked for, Maybe they felt like they've asked for or tried to advocate for making these things better, but they heard not right now a few times and maybe they've stopped asking because <laughs> they just assume that it's never going to happen. What advice could you offer them on how to like start making things better for themselves? I, I feel you. I really do. Um, and best things that I can advise, a couple things. Really framing it in the, not not advocating for lying, but like, Framing it in terms that make sense to your listener. If you can't draw a diagram, a chart, right, would be good, <laughs> right? So basically make a list of files, uh, copy paste in a table or something and say, these are all the ones that uh, we need to change in order to make that thing happen, if that's feasible. Sometimes it like, if you think about it, like, should I spend an hour or two hours Um, making a diagram or making a table or writing down like a very simple summary of what I need to do and why, how much time will I save in the back and forth for several weeks advocating, right? If you could have that way of being able to get on the same page as quickly as humanly possible, how much time will you save in the back and forth, maybe over weeks or months? Right. And that that's kind of the way that I think about it. So, yeah, making that table or making that diagram will probably take you a couple hours. But one of our users basically had to, like, merge in a, like, 60 file review. Um, and then they needed they had these architecture review meetings. Right. So all she did was pull up a diagram of that change and everyone just saw it and she walked talking through it and they were like, OK, done. Right. And so like having that is I cannot advocate for it enough. It really does change everything. One of the things that I've often seen teams struggle with is, you know, when they're in those situations, there's always a part of me that's like, well, trying to think about it from the other person's perspective as well. Like, especially when there's like some messy areas of the code or like shortcuts needed to be taken. Sometimes I wonder how often developers don't do themselves any favors by not talking about those trade-offs that they're making when they're happening. So they like, they can connect the dot back later on. They're like, ah, we get this thing out. So like, okay, we'll just do this. We'll get it out. Cool. They get past QA. We're shipping it. Yay. But behind the scenes, like we had, we needed to care some stuff. And then like six months later, they're like, oh, we had to cut some corners. And the, the product team people are like, I didn't ask you to 
cut corner. Like, why are you, you know, so there's kind of like a little bit of like, it ends up being this weird tension point where like the developers might feel like, well, the product team's putting a lot of pressure on us to do these things. And then, and then they're like, so the product team's like almost to blame for the state of the situation, but the product team never please cut corners, but maybe they did, but, and if they did, then that's like a reasonable thing. But if it's like this implicit, like finger pointing, like, why are, why did you make them? Why is there so much, why is there so much debt? I don't remember saying that we wanted to, we don't want to make a mess of the code. Right. Yeah. I think that like that alignment piece that I was talking about earlier is really important and we're spending so much time doing it because we don't like we can't transfer that information to one another um, in an effective way and so it just seems like it takes forever and like I said it's just ineffective and so I think the way that you know as a product person I like to be walked through things is okay there is a a minimum viable and then there's a pessimistic estimate and we call them pestimates. So like if, if understanding, like if I do it this way, this is what you're going to get. And here's the trade-offs, but taking it one step further, say saying like, if you ever wanted to do this, this, and this, and this, it's going to be impossible. Or we can do this, this, and this, and this, and if, when you want to do this later, when you want to prioritize it, these things will take X time. So we can kind of walking someone through that trade-off and really advocating and saying, I advise for this second thing because you're going to want to provide business value in this way later, um, and I can help you do that. I'll give you a really clean example. So. In my career, I've built our back four times. <laughs> it sucked every single time. <laughs> and, you know, lo and behold, you know, at Coatsy, we had to, you know, do role-based access controls again, obviously. So I had to I had to advocate with my engineering leader, with my CTO, to be like, we're eventually gonna need to build custom roles. I don't know when, I don't know how, but we're gonna be gonna need to build custom roles. And I need us to take the time to architect it in a way that custom roles will be easier to be added on later. Like, let's just take the extra day to outline the architecture, make sure that that thing, like, make sure that that thing is easy. Yes, I am okay taking more time up front. And yes, the architecture will be a little bit more complicated, but it will 100% be worth it <laughs> if we needed to expand our custom our roles and permissions we don't know what kind of permissions uh enterprises are going to need and we need that flexibility rather than having to re-architect basically ripping the whole thing out and starting again it's good it's basically a nightmare so that's the conversation I had with my CTO <laughs> just from experience <laughs> right you can have that conversation Maybe depending on the size of the team that there might be some developers that are like, well, by the time I get the ticket or the story to work on or the card or whatever the tooling that they're using, I'm a little bit disconnected from from like the product people enough that like let's, they just assume that they, they've, they've thought of everything already and they got this perfectly immaculate. I think I always hear about developers that are like, well, it'd be great if like they could, you know, just make sure that the the thing that I'm getting signed is like 
for lack of a better term, and are fleshed out <laughs> and not like a half idea, right? And so, which is funny because one of the things that, you know, it's, it's something I've been ruminating on a little bit lately is that there's always this kind of like how poor we can be sometimes as developers at producing documentation, expectations on other people to produce useful documentation to, to do some work. We might have higher standards for other people than we do for our own sense of like, this ticket isn't done enough for me to start working on it, let alone is my documentation for the work that I just produced done. I need to have a deep soul searching about that myself. So, <laughs> I think the best way to solve that problem, which is straight up human to human interaction. So... I've always had kind of deep empathy with my engineering teams because I understand like what they're, yeah, I'm one of them, right? I get, I get it. But if you have a PM that is not that way, I kind of recommend doing exactly what I said before. So going up to them and being like, hey, this is how you're going to be measured as being a successful fill in the blank product manager, sales leader, whatever. I don't care. I am literally here to support you. Here's how I can support you. Um, loop me in early and often. And I will, as even if you're trying to brainstorm ideas, you know, we can go back and forth and I can help you to flesh out your ideas to make it more easy to build. And I understand more of the context. I'll help, you know, connect with the team. That's probably a 15-minute conversation. And if you offer it that way, you know, you'll get the information earlier. And that will make your lives easier in the long run. Even if like, yeah, sometimes they, you know, there's like a lot of meetings and you need your focus time. Just set boundaries, right? Still offer it, but like set boundaries. Like I'd love to have just a standing meeting with you every Tuesday and Friday. I don't, you know, whatever it is, just to go over those things that are fuzzy, make sure that you've thought through the architecture and why things are the way that they are. And that will help you in the long run ship faster code, right? Ship more quality code, make sure that the end of the day, you know, we're not going to ship a bug that's going to bring the whole system down because of your feature. I think that is some really, really great advice for people to to think over. And I would imagine there's a number of people that are listening. They're probably like nodding their head, being like, "Yeah, I could do that. I'm capable of doing that." And you know, it's not I, I, another thing to always remind people is just that you know, it's always coming down to how much can we do we feel like there's a sense of uh, security and be able to have these kind of conversations. It doesn't need to be a conflict conversation. Hopefully, you have enough, as you said, alignment towards the a shared goal. And that's your organization's goal or in your product's goal or that feature you're working on. And, and they want you to be successful, hopefully, just as much as you want them to be successful. Yeah. And, and you know, for the naysayers, like who are like, I don't want to have that 15 minute conversation or like be pinged my, by my PM twice a week. Just imagine being pinged at three in the morning or page three in the, at three in the morning. <laughs> and, you know, then you have to get up and they put out a fire in the middle of the night Imagine how much time that could have saved with a 15-minute conversation. <laughs> the the lessons that we learn from uh, of trying to be proactive rather than reactive, right? Yeah. No, I, I, I get it. I, I don't want to be paged in the middle of the night. No one really does. Unless <laughs> right? you enjoy being a firefighter and you find value in fixing problems. You can get addicted to that. 
absolutely. But you can totally fix problems during working hours. Seems reasonable. I think that's something I needed to learn over the years. I was like, I'll do it. I'll fix the thing. And everybody loves me because I got up and fixed the thing. All right. So a couple of quick last questions for you, Shanae. Uh, is there a non-software, non-technical, non-programming book that you find yourself recommending to peers on a regular basis? So many. Speaking of like just having conversations and having empathy with people, um, there's a wonderful book called Crucial Conversations that I've read cover to cover multiple times, and it is required reading in our company for being able to have a hard conversation with somebody else in a in a way that doesn't violate their psychological safety. And it's one of my all-time favorites because at the end of the day, we are absolutely going to have to make and have hard conversations with people. It's like, it's not if, it's when. And so having a good framework to be able to do that will really set us up for success. And that kind of permeates like everything that we do. Like our engineers on our team is like, oh my God, I've learned. Like not only how to work better in the team, but how to talk to my wife, <laughs> right? right? It's, it's all the same skill, right? Um, and having a framework to do that when maybe you're an introvert, right? Or maybe, you know, you're not great at talking to folks. Having a framework makes those things a lot easier. That's great. I'll definitely, uh, I think a couple of guests have mentioned it. I think I purchased it. I have not read it. It's sitting in my Kindle. So it's ready for me to read. I need to take care, do that sometime in your future. Audible, man. Got to gotta do the Audible. That's true. I, <laughs> <laughs> With that, uh, where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online and learn more about Codesy? On Codesy.io, on our Twitter accounts. Sometimes people just talk about us randomly. So for all of y'all, thank you, heart you. Um, and uh, on our learn learn.codesy.io, we have a bunch of tutorials. We also have a community um, that we um, have created called Open Source Hub, which we are very, very excited about. Um, So come hang out with us. Excellent. I'll definitely include links to all those in the show notes for everybody. And it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Shania. Thanks for swinging by and talking shop with me. Thank you so much for having me. I had such an amazing opportunity and so much fun. I learned a bunch of things today and I'm going to go do some reading up today. Thanks again. Thank you.